Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today is Travis, formerly our uh, our, our our famous guy, uh, our man in Kurdistan, but no longer in Kurdistan. Travis, how you been? Uh, you know, it's been a rough couple of months, but I'm here. It's been a while, uh, but you, uh, I think it's been like almost a year. It seems like uh, since you've been on the show, it's been it's been a while. Uh, but you have a hand in uh, creating a little bit of lore for the show, uh, and and our lo- our lore, admittedly, seemingly organically d- develops independently from Nick and I. Yeah, who knows. Uh, I don't, I don't even try to understand. I don't understand half it myself anymore. But one of those things was our uh, not so our ironic but not so ironic obsession with the T fifty five tank. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't honestly know where it came from. Um, I I think like I I mean I know I definitely had something to do with it because like it started around the time I came on the pod and talked about Iraqi uh, arms development back in like November of twenty eighteen. And a lot of what I studied was the T-55, but like how that became a meme, I don't know. And now we have it on uh, shirts and stuff. but uh, <laughs> Which I haven't got. I need to get one of those. At some point. I don't have a T-55 shirt either. I have virtually every other one though. <laughs> um, I think it's just because uh, personally uh, I'm against idolatry and uh, uh, you know, owning a shirt with a T-55 on it and not owning an actual T-55. Yeah. It's sacrilege. Um, Although, to be fair, if somebody wanted to mail me one of the nicer uh, model kits for the T-55, I would not argue. uh, If somebody, I think that's been our Patreon goal since like day one is like, I think it's like $55,000 and we can buy a (laughs) T-55 from Syria, you know, and if if our Patreon gets that big, I'll worry about the import cost. Don't worry about that. (laughs) I'll handle it somehow. I got a tank guy. Uh, So... You know, we thought, and you approached me and said, you know, I would like to do an episode on the history of the T-55 tank, Mm -hmm. and I thought that would be a really good idea, since we seemingly made this joke out of nowhere and then (laughs) never explained it. And I think a lot of that, so personally, and I think you probably agree with me, that uh, my obsession with it is mostly, well, obviously as a fucking tanker, like I'm Mm -hmm. never going to be able to separate myself from like my deep, deep, irrational love of giant inadequate machines. Right. Um, But... It's because that it seems to be like if you were to pick like an assim- a symbol of eternal warfare, it would be like a T-55 tank crossed with a shitty old AK from yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Because even though they were bolted together in a long, long ago shuttered factory that no longer exists <laughs> and everybody who built it's probably dead. Uh-huh. If there, if we fight our first intergalactic war, I guarantee you we're going to be fighting AK-47s and T-55 tanks. So it's yeah. like as someone who spent entirely too long in the military and around tanks and never was in a tank that could seemingly operate for more than an hour at a time without breaking <laughs> down. Like 
that sort of thing has always really interested me and i always yeah. wonder how the fuck this thing got made yeah well um i mean for me i think it's a pretty interesting story um so i i first found out about it because i was doing research for my um paper on the iraqi arms industry and one thing you kind of can't avoid when reading about the Iran-Iraq war and particularly the Iraqi army during that war was the fact that they just had shit loads of T-55s. I think at some point they had upwards of five to 6,000 various models of T-55, T-62 and T-72, but mostly T-55s. And so after reading that, I was like, so what is this thing? And um, I found a couple of books and started reading into it. And it's just been really, really interesting, um, at least to me. I mean, granted, I am, I've always kind of liked tanks and the T-55, once the more I learned about it, the more I was like, I feel like this tank is kind of the, I don't know, it, it's like, it's like the, the, the quintessential tank. You, it's hard to get more or less tanky than this. So, if someone's <laughs> going to ask, what is a tank? You got to start with the T-55 and work forwards or backwards from there, in my opinion. It's really unfortunate that uh, the T-55 is going to excuse a whole lot of war crimes <laughs> for, for being so tanky. Uh, Yeah, but it's dope. So, you know what? I, th- I think that might be the first tanky-related dad joke. <laughs> Probably. Hopefully, let's not do more of those. Because <laughs> it was a shit joke. Sorry, Joe. You know, you can't land them all the time. Uh, my my life is just a series of throwing shit to the wall and, see, and seeing what sticks. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, shall we? Uh, shall we begin? I am the Nick. This episode, all I right. am here to. I am here to be educated. So okay. take it away, good sir. All right, let's do that. So I think um, we. I, before I get started, I kind of want to talk a little bit about. Um, like a lot of people say a tank is good or they'll say a tank is bad or they say a tank, um, I don't know, it just like doesn't work or whatever like that. And I would say just to start, I think that, or at least I would argue that at some point in World War II, you can't really point to an example of a genuinely bad tank that has been fielded in any significant quantity. Um, and the reason I say that is because tanks are designed for very specific purposes to fit a given doctrine at a given time. And while not all were necessarily extremely successful at that, um, pretty much any tank that got fielded in any significant number met some basic standards that like, were, uh, basically got hammered out by the time World War II was over. And um, another thing I'll add is that tanks are not designed to like be good in World of Tanks, the video game. Um, they are designed <laughs> within very specific limited material limitations and in order to fit a doctrine in need of a specific army or user. And as a result, a lot of armchair generals and oftentimes even tank crew members uh, think that their tank or a given tank is bad or that their enemy tanks are good or better, when in reality they just aren't really seeing the full picture or the context of the situation. And what I mean by that is like armchair generals, namely nerds on the internet, um, or not really nerds, usually just dumbasses on the internet, We'll look at like statistics. The hosts of this podcast. Well, you know, <laughs> us and then basically everyone who plays World of Tanks, they'll look at um, the statistics that will show up in World of Tanks, namely which tank has like the thicker armor, a bigger gun, goes faster or whatever. And those questions often um, tend to ignore the kind of material reality of a lot of those things. Like, for example, thicker armor doesn't mean shit if the steel it's made out of is terrible. For example... Most German tanks made after like 1943, 1944, like the Tigers and so on, they may have had really thick armor, but the quality of it 
was so poor because the steel production in Germany was so terrible that oftentimes you could simply hit it with high explosive and it would cause enough spalling to kill everyone inside the tank without even damaging the exterior of the armor. Um, and uh, that's what anti that's what anti tank crews call a pro gamer move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, like the, the statistics of that tank on paper don't mean shit if the quality control is bad or like the logistics aren't able to keep up with it. And um, it also ignores the fact that battles don't take place in like a one v one flat arena where both vehicles are perfectly well supplied with crews of equal skill and training, and every part within each tank works perfectly. And then kind of the flip side of that is a lot of tank crew members. Um, They may be really good at driving their particular tank or maintaining their particular tank, but they don't necessarily see their individual tank in the larger context of logistics and doctrine and strategy and all that kind of stuff. Like the most famous example of this, in my opinion, is there's this book from World War II called Death Traps about the M4 Sherman tank. And this book was written by the guy whose job during World War II was to basically clean out the dead bodies of American tank crew members from Sherman tanks um, so that they could be repaired and sent back to the front. And as a result of his experience, he felt somewhat understandably that the Sherman was not good at its job and was, well, a death trap. And uh, this missed a couple of key points, namely the fact that the Sherman could be repaired to send, be sent back, um, yeah. which like is pretty important, especially if you have to ship all of your tanks across the Atlantic Ocean you want it to be able to repair it and reuse it, even if all the mem- you know tank crew members have been turned into paste. Um, and uh, also, it was ignoring the fact that the German tanks they were up against were like even worse. For example, like the Sherman actually had the highest crew survivability rate of any tank in the war. Um, but the guy cleaning the dead bodies out is probably not going to really get that. Um, so basically, all I just want to point out is that. Things are a little more more complicated than they might seem about whether something is good or bad or effective or not effective or whatever. So yeah, and I I actually have to admit that I had to source death traps um, during an episode that we did. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a bonus episode about um, Fury because the people who made Fury made everybody read death traps. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, well, fuck. I guess I have to figure out what it is they used. (laughs) Yeah. it, yeah. it, it's been pretty savaged as a book. It's the gun germs and steel of tanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, uh, myths about military equipment are really um, they're really prevalent and they're hard to dispel because fortunately, pretty much most military equipment made since World War II hasn't really been put to much of a test with the exception of like a handful of small arms and most importantly to this episode, the T-55 main battle tank. Um, so I guess, you know, where did it all start? Where did it begin? Where did the T-55, uh, when was it first a twinkle in its father's eye? And, um, that would be, uh, World War II, of course, where most things seem to have begun, at least with modern military technology. So the Soviet Union during World War II, um, they were pretty lucky that when the war broke out, they had begun to field in large quantities, early versions of the T-34 medium tank. Um, and even though during the early war, the T-34 wasn't particularly well armored, it didn't have a particularly powerful gun, and it didn't have particularly high crew survivability or comfort, but it was good enough that for the desperate early days of the war that it, um, you know, it was fine. It was good enough. And even the Germans thought that it was a very formidable tank. Um, but it wasn't amazing. It was far from perfect. It, you know, it had it up, its ups and its downs. 
And of course, the Soviets knew it wasn't perfect and they had actually planned a pretty comprehensive upgrade program, but then the war broke out and they didn't quite have the resources, um, at least early on, to do comprehensive upgrading that they really wanted to have done. Um, they couldn't, basically, they couldn't let perfect be the enemy of good because they were fighting a war of extermination against Nazi Germany. So, they didn't really have time to wait. They just had to churn out what they could. But as the uh, tide of the war began to turn in like 1942, 1943, the Soviets felt a little bit more comfortable in investing more resources and seriously reworking the basic design of the T-34 instead of just throwing on whatever upgrades they could. Um, of particular concern was the relatively underpowered 76 millimeter main cannon that the tank was using at the time, as well as a suspension system um, that took up a lot of extra space inside the body of the tank. And then the layout of the turret was really cramped and really not particularly well suited to the job. Um, so they started, you know, they made a couple upgrades. They made some stopgap versions. They put a version with a, um, they built a version with a bigger turret and a more powerful 85 millimeter cannon um, that they began to field in large quantities by the end of the war. And um, that was the uh, the T-34-85, which by the end of the war was the most common um, kind of modern tank that the uh, Soviets were fielding and it was extremely effective and versatile and probably, I mean, I, I would argue that the T-3485 along with the M4 Sherman, uh, the M4A3 Easy 8 Sherman with the 76mm cannon or the uh, British Sherman Firefly were probably the quote-unquote best all-around tanks of the war. Um, although that's kind of a meaningless statement because uh, that's not really how it works, like I said before. But they were pretty darn good, and they were very effective against pretty much everything that the Germans um, could throw against them. However, uh, around 1943, the KB-250 Design Bureau at the Ural Vagonzavod tank plant in Nizhny Tagil in the Ural Mountains of Russia, and I don't speak any Russian or understand Russian, so I'm going to butcher these <laughs> pronunciations. Um, so have fun with that any Russians in the audience. Um, these guys, particularly um, the design bureau chief was Alexander Morozov. Uh, they began working in earnest in the middle of the war on a full-fledged replacement to the T-34. Um, and their primary goal was to design a tank that had thick armor that was strong enough to defeat the larger tank guns that the Germans were using in like the Panther or Tiger tanks um, without also compromising on weight and speed. So they basically had to figure out a way to build a tank that had thicker armor, bigger gun, bigger engine, but weigh the same. Um, tall order. However, this would require completely redesigning the whole of the tank. So they're basically starting with the T-34 and trying to figure out a way to make it better in every possible way without being heavier. So they had to redo everything, particularly the hull, in order to fit all the new parts in. Um, and the design that they started working on was actually pretty darn effective. Um, it was not, they, the thing that they came out with was not substantially heavier. Um, it had substantially thicker frontal plate armor. So the T-34 had a front, plate arm, uh, front armor plate of 47 millimeters thick at an angle. Um, the tank that they were designing had a front armor plate that was 120 millimeters thick. So that's three times thicker at the same weight. Um, and similarly, they also up majorly upgraded the size of the cannon. They made it standard to be uh, the 85mm gun instead of basically having to scale up the turret substantially in order to fit in the gun. 
Um, they actually even made prototype versions with like this massive 122 millimeter cannon that like when you see a picture of it, it looks kind of absurd um, because the cannon is like like twice as long as the actual tank. It's pretty ridiculous, <laughs> but I'm sure that would be dope. Um, <laughs> uh, Until you had to like turn in any way. <laughs> yeah, or like reload the gun. Uh, so the, the what they came out with was the T44, T, or yeah, T44. And um, this tank, they started producing it um, basically at the end of 1944 and early 1945, but they weren't able to get them out onto the front lines quite fast enough before the war ended. So it never saw combat. However, it did. Uh, they mer- were able to make a fair few of them um, by the time the war ended. And uh, I think around 1800, the T-44s were actually built before they were phased out of production. And I would argue that the T-44... Um, at least in the Soviet Union, was kind of the basis for what would become the quote-unquote main battle tank. So basically, well, I guess to explain, before World War II and during World War II, tanks were divided into like light tanks, medium tanks, and heavy tanks, um, where the names are fairly self-explanatory, and each tank has a slightly different role. Light tanks are fast, and they're with a small cannon, light armor, and um, they just kind of scoot around the battlefield doing recon. Medium tanks are kind of compromised where they're kind of the bulk of the tank force, and then heavy tanks are heavy, heavily armored, heavy gun are like used to like break through and stuff like that. Um, but the concept of the main battle tank is essentially you build one tank and it does all of those things. Um, so it's light, it's fast, has a big gun, and it's got heavy armor, um, and somehow it can do everything. But And that required just like advancing technology, which happened quite rapidly during World War II. And I would say the T-44 was kind of the first Soviet main battle tank in some ways. Um, however, still wasn't enough. Um, the end of the war in 1945 did not see um, a halt in the continued upgrade and redesign and new designs of tanks because the Cold War was starting to heat up basically as soon as World War II ended. And the primary desire of the Soviet designers was to take the T-44 and fit an even larger and more powerful cannon in it because like I said, they had been using the T, or sorry, the 85 millimeter cannon as standard, but they felt that even that was not really enough. Um, it wasn't quite powerful enough uh, to do what they were looking for. So they started to consider a couple of other options for the cannon. They had a couple of 100 millimeter cannons that they were looking at, and then the 122 millimeter cannon that I mentioned prior. However, they felt that the 122 millimeter cannon was too slow to load because it, it had a, a two-part. Um, uh, two-part round where basically you load in the explosive and then you put in the powder afterwards. Um, oh, so like an old, uh, old... like So it's like kind of a, like a straight-up artillery piece. Yeah. I mean, I think they eventually made their way back to that with the auto-loading cannons um, and like the T-72 onwards. But at the time, it meant you had to have like an actual physical guy in the turret put in the the... The, the shell and then reach back and put in the, uh, the powder charge and so it was just slower um, and also you, could, you couldn't carry as much ammunition um, so they ultimately decided against the 122 millimeter gun even though it was fucking huge and sick and like tight and thick um, I mean, uh, veiny um, throbbing throbbing uh, oh god oh, Jesus uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So they decided actually on the uh, D10T 100 millimeter smoothbore cannon, um, and they chose this because it was a compromise between 
It was bigger than the 85 millimeter, smaller than the 122 millimeter. It was pretty accurate, high velocity. Um, you know, just generally, it was a pretty decent gun. Um, however, this would require completely redesigning the, 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 the current existing T-44 turret in order to accommodate the larger cannon. Um, so, in 1945, the new design fitted with this new turret and an even thicker 200mm front armor plate was dubbed the Object 137. It's probably just Object, but it's Russian, so Object 137. Um, and the production version was granted the designation T-54. And uh, so, Soviet tank factories, particularly Nizhny Tagil and Kharkov, began cranking out T-54s as early as 1947. Um, however, the first production model, the T-54, um, wasn't that great. Its limitations were clear pretty early on, causing to production halt after only about a thousand of them were built. And the primary concern was that um, on top of some reliability issues, the turret that they had wasn't large enough to fit um, a sufficient number of shells um, and other ammunition because um, they, you know, they wanted to carry something like, you know, 40, 50 rounds and they carry maybe half that. So, they had to totally redesign the, the turret. Um, so the Morozov Design Bureau quickly redesigned or quickly designed a new uh, replacement turret, and this Wouldn't new they have figured that out like in testing in some way. Uh, yeah, probably, but <laughs> I mean things were going real fast, and probably different um, bureaucracies kind of talking past each other, and you know who knows how this sort of thing really worked um, on a day to day basis. But um, yeah, it does seem like the kind of thing they would have figured out. Or like one guy signed off on like 25 rounds of ammunition capacity and then they actually got to the army and the army's like, what the fuck? We said 40. Um, so, you know, who knows? Um, I, I like R&D that waits until the first thousand are done. <laughs> and yeah. like, uh, we'll, we'll work out the kinks. You know, they, they call yeah. that the MRAP method. <laughs> well, some of the numbers I'm going to be giving you in a couple of minutes, a thousand is a pretty small number. <laughs> <laughs> so a thousand you they could have built a thousand in like a year no question um and uh so yeah so they quickly built the new turret or designed a new turret at the morozov design bureau and this new turret would be kind of the first design that looks kind of like the classic cold war tank uh soviet classic cold war tank with that you know that like kind of dome shaped turret um that looks almost like it grows out of the hole of the tank yeah. very kind of iconic soviet kind of style turret and this was the, um, they, co they called it, the, I think, the T-54-1, like Model 1. Um, and this entered production soon after the first production variant, uh, and along with a couple of other minor improvements, kind of in the late 40s, early 50s. And the five-year plan from 1951 through 1955 called for the production of 12,000 of these. Um, Jesus. Yeah. So, during that time, in these years, in the late 40s, early 50s, the Alexander Morozov's Design Bureau moved from their wartime place in the Ural Mountains at the Ural Vagonzavod tank plant to Kharkov and uh, Ukrainian Soviet Republic. Um, Morozov, at this point, was getting pretty tired of just upgrading the, T the T-44 that he had designed back in the war, and he, at this point, was starting to really desire to really revolutionize tank design. Um, and do something totally different. And he was granted permission, and he began to work on his new project, which he dubbed the Object 430. However, unfortunately, we won't really be talking about that much today, uh, because the Red Army and the Soviet Union did not have time to wait for Morozov's revolutionary design to come into production. As the Cold War was heating up, and the Soviets needed tanks that they could pour into eastern Germany in case war with NATO went hot. 
Um, and here I should probably talk a little bit about Soviet doctrine on like a broad scale as this greatly impacted how their tanks were designed. And I'm not an expert on Soviet doctrine. I only know kind of the basic gist of things. But broadly speaking, the Soviets were planning for a highly mobile, 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 offensive war in Central Europe. Ooh, well, I like where (laughs) you're going with that. Um, Do we have any Tom of Finland drawings of Soviet tank crew members? Anyway. It's getting getting real horny on tank main. (laughs) Oh, you know it. So, they were planning for a highly nubile offensive war in Central Europe. Um, and they knew that any hot war with NATO would have to be won extremely quickly or it would risk going nuclear. Um, this would mean launching a quick, overwhelming offensive against NATO forces in Germany and maintaining an extremely high operational tempo in order to like, completely overwhelm NATO forces before reinforcements could arrive um, and any you know, trenches could be dug in. Um, and this is partly why the Soviets made almost all of their vehicles amphibious, um, like the BMP and BTR series of like uh, APCs and like infantry yeah. fighting vehicles and stuff. All of those are amphibious. And even their tanks, um, starting from the T-54 onwards, were actually capable of being relatively quickly outfitted with snorkel equipment so that they could um, forward streams. Um, and rivers and stuff. And the- I would not want to be the crew that finds out if their seals work or not. <laughs> well, because if, if they're anything like the M1, the seals never fucking work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure it wasn't perfect. Um, but I've actually seen a lot of like videos and read some affair things where the Soviets and their Warsaw Pact allies were actually like, they were pretty good at this um, because so much of their doctrine and the strategy rested on being able to cross streams. So they had to make sure they could do it reliably, um, and uh, because like Central Europe is just like a kind of a nightmare of rivers and streams and stuff, and uh, that that meant that in order to maintain the offensive pace that they needed, advancing Soviet forces and Warsaw Pact forces couldn't wait for the bridging teams and the engineers to come up every time they hit a river. So they had to just like keep pushing forward, and uh, that also meant that the resilience and power and all that kind of stuff of an individual vehicle was less important than the collective ability of an entire unit to maintain its offensive pace. And all of this impacted what? I can't, I, I can't <laughs> help but they literally did communism but with tanks. I mean, in many ways, <laughs> like that's, that's an extremely kind of, it's not correct, but it get, gets the point across, you know, <laughs> um, where they, they, I think it's, it's overly simplistic to say that they didn't care about quality because the vehicles they designed were a perfectly good quality. It's more just that the, the, type of quality was different um, than, for example, like in you know, German or American tank designs uh, at the same time uh, because they were just going for a different thing entirely. And this also talks, like, if we were doing an episode on, like, T-64, T-72, T-80 tanks that the Soviets built after the T-55 and T-62, these had the um, auto loader. They decided to go with an auto loader so they could reduce yeah. the number of crew members in the tank um, so that they could have the same number of trained crew members, but have like 25% more tanks per their number of crew members. And um, so it's just like they, they came at it with a pretty, a very different design calculus than the same design bureaus that were coming up with like the Leopard 2 or the M1 Abrams. Um, so anyway, back to the T-54. Murazov had left the project in the capable hands of the Vagonka design team under Ellen Kartsev um, back at Ural Vagonzavod in the Nizhny Tagol factory. 
And here the Soviets were playing with more advanced technology to start putting in their tanks. And uh, for example, the Red Army had been given large numbers of M4 Sherman tanks under the Lend-Lease program by the Americans during World War II. And most of those tanks had been fitted with gyroscopic gun stabilizers, which allowed the tank cannon to maintain its point of aim even while the tank was moving. And this would increase its ability to hit targets by as much as like a thousand percent under tests that they performed. Um, similarly, um, a lot of American M26 and M46 tanks were captured by the Chinese during the ongoing Korean War. And these tanks were fitted with bore evacuators on their cannons, which were designed to basically pump the gas from the exploding round out the front of the barrel instead of just kind of letting it sit um, in the tank and make the crew uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, that shit sucks. Yeah. You can really tell when you need to clean your bore evacuator. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Suddenly, uh, I'm dying. Yeah. Um, and basically, up until like the 50s, no tanks had those. Um, it's so astounding sh- how none of them like just immediately. It's like some World War II or World War One shit where they would all just slowly die from carbon monoxide inhalation from their own engine. Yeah, honestly, it wouldn't <laughs> shock me. Um yeah, so after, after they ca- captured these American tanks, had them from Lindley's, they started putting some of these newer technologies on their T-54 production models. They also started adding, like I said, snorkel equipment. They also added infrared optics, um, a newer improved version of the D-10 cannon, um, improved engines, all these sort of things. These got all grouped together in the new latest production model, which is the T-54A, and a later version called the T-54B, very creative. Um, and these also started entering production in a lot of Warsaw Pact partner states and China, particularly Poland and Czechoslovakia. And the Chinese started calling their production version the Type 59. Um, they had a couple of minor changes to the design, but it was basically a T-54A uh, is what the Type 59 is. And um, so a lot of other smaller improvements would continue to be added by both the Soviets and the various new factories they were being produced at in uh, the Warsaw Pact in China. But the next change came rather fittingly, during the 1950s when planners on both sides of the Cold War began to envision fighting a true, total nuclear war. Which meant, not only would you need bombers and missiles to, you know, lob nukes at each other's city, um, and, you know, military plants, uh, you know, like it's Dr. Strangelove, but they'd also need their tanks and soldiers to fight through the radioactive wasteland after the nuclear exchange. Um, And honestly, everything I've read about the 1950s uh, and their kind of initial approach from both sides to nuclear warfare is fucking terrifying. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I think you've, you did an episode or two that kind of talked about some of that stuff, at least on the American side of things. Uh, we um, talked a little bit about, um, it was with Martin Pfeiffer forever mm-hmm. ago, uh, and he talked about the, uh, we talked briefly about a lot of the insane weapons we came up with, like yeah. the, 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 the UK came up with a, a nuclear landmine that was yeah. powered by chicken body warmth. <laughs> And the Soviets had a much more um, uh, Soviet uh, uh, way of of testing nuclear weapons and tactics, and that was by marching soldiers through a nuclear blast. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think the Americans did that too, or something similar. Yeah, nobody really knew what they were doing. They just like to send their divisions toward nuclear explosions and see what happened. Um, um, Yeah, it it was a fun time. So, but actually, like, when I first read this, I was like, yeah, no way you're going to have a T-55 or, like, a tank or whatever fighting through a nuclear battlefield. But actually, when I read about it, the way they kind of approached it is actually pretty smart, um, unsurprisingly, I suppose. And, uh, which is, you'd need to pretty seriously rework the internals of the tank 
and the new tank would have to be able to completely seal itself off and also pressurize in order to prevent radioactive dust or even chemical weapons from entering the tank and killing the crew. So they installed a lead plastic lining on the interior of the tank. They put, um, they also added um, basically like a pressurization system and then some, they included some other upgrades like larger fuel capacity, larger ammunition capacity. They also removed the Dushka heavy machine gun from the top of the turret because they figured, well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, they figured that modern jet strike aircraft, um, like it's just not useful um, in order to try and shoot those down. And then also Soviet tank divisions would be starting, had started fielding more advanced mobile um, armored anti-aircraft systems like the Shilka and similar stuff. So they figured we don't need to waste all these resources sticking a machine gun on the tanks when we have much better systems um, that can actually be useful. Um, and so this new tank entered production in June 1958 with the designation, drumroll, T-55, and uh, an improved version in August of 1963 as the T-55A. However, here's where it's If coming. I had a, uh, a soundboard, this is where I'd play the Soviet national anthem. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, and it's interesting that like they thought of the, the an NBC system because U.S. tanks have that as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, we've never... I, they, maybe people have... Uh, use them uh, like during the Gulf War yeah. or something, but you know they were just an encumbrance whenever I was there. Yeah, uh, because you know nobody's guessing us. Uh. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean honestly, like for example, even with like you know the highest level of maintained American M one A two whatever SEP V fifty thousand that we're on right now, right? I bet those don't even work really. Um, you know, I would I would really like to never test any MBC <laughs> system because I have no faith in any of uh, I mean, I, yeah. I do know the mask works because like, you know, I got tear gassed and, mm -hmm. and they make you t take it off. And then I suddenly realized how well my mask worked. <laughs> but if yeah. you were to do the same thing, but like in the tank, I'm like, I don't know how, but the tear gas is going directly into this tube. Yeah. Uh, because you, you'd have to put your mask on and hook up to the internal system. Yeah. And like, I don't somehow just like nothing but dirt and mud is going to flow through the tube or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I would not want to, like, I'm sure with all the American tanks, like, um, you know, they installed this, like the line, lead lining or whatever to prevent radio radiation back in like the, when it was first produced. And then like, nobody's bothered to look at it since. Um, because like, I have a strong feeling that is most tanks in the world. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah this, this thing's NBC sealed. Uh, don't test it though. <laughs> yeah, please God, don't test it. Um, but anyway, one thing that I thought was kind of funny, as soon as the T-55A entered service, actually soon before it entered service, uh, Soviet tank designers received a somewhat rude awakening when a communist Iranian, like an Iranian tank officer of communist sympathies decided to drive his american-built m60a1 tank across the border into soviet azerbaijan as a defector um and the soviets took a look at the tank and were somewhat disturbed by the uh 105 millimeter gun that the m60 used as well as just a slightly more comfortable and effective turret crew layout and uh, so they kind of panicked and immediately designed a 115 millimeter cannon that would match the uh, 105 millimeter one that the uh American tank had and they also redesigned the interior of the turret a little bit and they extended the hull and this was the T-62 and the T-62 entered full-scale series production in July of 1962 hence the name 
if you'll notice, it entered production slightly uh, before, actually a full year before the T55A entered production. So um, this is one of those parts where the kind of logistics and the like the kind of sheer pace of Soviet production was kind of interesting because basically they would have a factory building the T55 and they'd be like, they designed the T62 and they'd started, they'd build a factory building the T62 or they'd take another factory and start, have that one start building the T62. But it's like they still don't have enough T62 production to completely phase out the T55 production. And so they would just be producing vast quantities of tanks of multiple production series all at the same time in order to fill their needs um they were just addicted to tanks um <laughs> it's and, a, cri- a crippling soviet addiction to tanks yeah honestly that that'd be the main reason i would be a tanky just to like you know do scrooge mcduck dive into a pile of tanks um, that's the true rich person addiction it's like yeah her- <laughs> heroin is is, is like kind of boring check out all these tanks i have (laughs) exactly um actually one thing i forgot the t6 so the 105 millimeter gun that the um m60 was using was designed after a hundred millimeter a t55 with a hundred millimeter gun or maybe it was a t i think a t54 with a hundred millimeter gun was captured by hungarian rebels during the hungarian uprising in 1956 and British officers at the embassy looked at it and were like, oh, shit, this gun is good. So, the 105mm gun was designed for NATO. And then it got captured by the Soviets who were like, oh, shit, this gun is good. And so, they built the 115mm gun and... Um, Everything comes full circle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's, just, it's just tank spying all the way down. <laughs> basically. Um, so, as I was talking about the, uh, like, uh, the, the production and stuff, so the... Um, once the T-62 entered production in 1962, most of the other factories started uh, transitioning production to the T-62 as well, with the exception of a tank factory in Omsk in the Russian SSR. Um, it continued its production of the T-55A, and from around 1964-1965, pretty much every tank they produced was designed for export, um, or not designed, but destined for export. Um, and um, only actually the interesting thing about the T-62 is only a few years after it entered, entered production, it was quickly replaced by the T-64 and then soon afterwards the T-72. Um, so the T-62 was actually under major production for a very brief period of time and the T-55 actually outlived it. Um, and the T-55, uh, particularly the T-55A model, had proven itself sufficiently cheap and easy to manufacture, easy to use, easy to maintain, and as a result, it was basically the perfect tank for the growing market for tank purchases, modern tank purchases in the developing and post-colonial world, particularly the Middle East. And as a result, almost every T-55A built in the USSR after the mid-1960s was exported. And here I'm going to hit you with some sexy numbers. You know how I just love numbers. Oh, yeah. So you, But you're going to love these. Between 1959 and 1977, the Soviet Union produced 30,000 T-55 tanks. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, wish, I wish we had some kind of like gross estimate <laughs> of tanks that were not T-55s that were produced by literally anywhere else combined during the yeah. same time. Like it can't be close, right? No, I'm sure. Like I, I'm like, sure I, like a ton of M48s and M60s were built, like thousands and thousands, but I can't, it can't many. match. It can't match the T-55. 
I have a hard time believing that there is 20,000 M60s in existence. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but wait, there's more. So the Eastern, pa- or the Eastern Warsaw Pact states like Poland, Romania, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, and so, and so on, they also needed their own tank forces. And they weren't relying on Soviet factories. They were mostly supplying their own militaries, primarily with just licensed production of Soviet-made weapons. But that means they had to build them. They didn't quite have the resources to so quick, quickly and rapidly adapt new designs like the Soviets did. So they were sticking with like basically the previous model that the Soviets had. And these states actually continued production and local modification and improvement uh, far longer than the Soviet Union did. Uh, basically through till production through till the end of the Cold War and modification in some cases through till the present. Um, so Poland actually produced over 7,000 T-55s of various models. Czechoslovakia built um, nearly 8,000 T-55s of various models, and other countries such as Romania and I think Yugoslavia at some point also built T-55s, but I could actually be wrong about Yugoslavia. But basically, the Eastern Warsaw Pact states themselves built probably fifteen to 20,000 T-55s um, during the Cold War. And, so there's uh, like uh, around 55,000 T-55s. Yeah, I haven't even mentioned, I don't even know the numbers for the Chinese Type 59, um, but I'm sure that's in the thousands at least, if not more than 10,000. So yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if between 50, anywhere between 50 and 75,000 T-55 models were produced. (laughs) Um, Yeah, which is pretty absurd. Um, That's absurd for like World War II numbers. Yeah, like this is the kind of stuff that kind of hammers hammers home how scary the Cold War would have been had it actually broken out. I mean, not even thinking about nuclear weapons, um, but just like the sheer quantity of modern military equipment that was present in Europe during that time is just really terrifying to think about. Because, you know, the Eastern Bloc would have had, you know, tens of thousands of T-55s, T-62s, T-72s, depending on what time of the war it was. And, of course, NATO would have had tons of their own tanks of various models, M47s, M48s, M60s, Leopards, um, whatever the fuck the French were using, um, AMX-30, I think, something like that. Yeah, Um, they're always terrible. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, you know, like tens of thousands of NATO tanks as well. And that's not to mention the ballistic, like the Scud-type missiles and the um, fucking rocket artillery, just like obscene quantities of conventional military equipment present in, like, Germany during the cold war is pretty scary um it, they're yeah. eventually going to come up with a bigger t-55 that shoots smaller t-55 just to burn up <laughs> some of the t-55s they have laying around honestly that's probably the best way to do it but polish uh, air force just diving in and <laughs> dropping t unloaded t-55s on people yeah, the please new- just take one <laughs> it's like the price of oil is negative 47 cents or whatever a couple of weeks ago like the price of a T-55 really probably, <laughs> at least in like 1990, was probably like negative $40,000. Um, Man, what am I going to do with all these <laughs> T-55s? It's, it's the Bitcoin of tanks. Yeah. Well, unfortunately. It actually does something. Yeah. Unfortunately, honestly, or fortunate. Well, unfortunately, let's be real. Unfortunately, most of these tanks did find, uh, they found a war to fight in. Um, so we did talk about it a little bit during the Iran-Iraq War episode that I was on, but huge quantities of these tanks um, made it to the Middle East uh, to various state actors there, um, primarily Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. 
Um, they were used extensively during the um, Arab-Israeli Arab-Israeli wars. Um, mostly, I think in 1973. I think in 1967. I could be wrong about this, but I still think the majority of Arab army tanks in 1967 were like much older, like literally like T-34s and um, a lot of even a lot of like World War II German um, surplus stuff. I mean, they still had some T-44s and or T-54s and T-55s, but I think it wasn't a majority of their tank force by that point. But but 1973, absolutely, the Egyptians and Syrians had primarily T-55s and T-62s. And I think at that point, the majority were T-55s. Um, and they were up against Israeli um, Centurions and M60s and 48s and even modified Shermans um, that had the 105mm L7 cannon, I think. Um, and uh, the tanks themselves, I mean, the Israelis and the Egyptians and Syrians all considered that the T-55 and T-62 but um, were like perfectly good tanks. But the reason that the Egyptian and Syrian armies lost had nothing to do with the quality of their tanks and more to do with the quality of their training um, and some other, other, other kind of secondary and tertiary factors. Um, so, I don't, think, I don't think anyone who seriously studied it believes that the Arab armies had inferior technology. Um, they just had. Well, if they did. I don't think the Israelis would have taken their tanks that they had disabled. Yeah, exactly. The Israelis they pressed captured, a lot of them yeah. back into service. Exactly, and actually, the uh, not the T fifty five, but the T sixty two was considered superior to anything the Israelis had in their arsenal in nineteen seventy three. Um, uh, the main reason, the or one of the main reasons, the Israelis were able to um, kind of uh, withstand or uh, kind of counterattack the initial offensive by the Egyptians was. The U.S. basically just like shipped them unlimited quantities of M48 M60 tanks, um, and to basically refill their arsenal because they had lost most of their equipment um, during the initial offensive. And uh, so, thanks Nixon uh, again, as always. Um, but they were also used extensively in the uh, Iran-Iraq War um, by both sides. Mostly the Iraqis, but over the war, the Iranians were able to capture and acquire large numbers as well. Um, here, I think it's tough to say how well they really performed because they were up against, like, the Iranians, Iranian tank force was really not what I think we could consider a conventional tank force because none of it was locally produced and it was basically whatever they could find or piece together from existing stockpiles or captured from the Iraqis. And they didn't really have any consistent form of resupply because they were sanctioned and had arms embargoes. The Iraqis, on the other hand, had like, like I mentioned, like a million fucking T-55s um, by the end of the war. And uh, by the end of the war, they're also, I think, producing some local parts as well. Um, T-54s and T-55s also saw service in the Vietnam War on the side of the North Vietnamese. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, they were primarily used towards the end of the war in conventional North Vietnamese offenses against the South. I don't think they saw a ton of service against American troops there, but during um, the more conventional fighting after the American withdrawal, I think they served fairly well against whatever the South Vietnamese had, which I think were mostly like, um, you know, not, not particularly modern stuff, like maybe M47s or something like that. I'm not 100% sure. They also saw some service in some of the India-Pakistan wars. Um, Although I think relatively limited service, I think most sides, both sides were mostly using um, American-made tanks um, and British-made tanks by the 
during those wars. So, uh, those are the main conventional wars that they fought in. They've also seen a lot of service in various civil wars. Oh, I guess one thing I really want to know more about is their usage during the uh, Angolan Civil War because they were primarily used there by Cuban forces pretty effectively against right. the apartheid South African army um, and uh, as well as uh, in, the, in the service of the Angolan um, communist uh, side of things. I think they saw a fair bit of service in that war and were pretty effective. Um, they also were, I think, the primary tank during the uh, Ethiopian Civil War between Eritrea and, or I guess the Eritrean War of Independence, and then the Somali invasion of Ethiopia in the 70s. This is Eritrea erasure, you bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, probably. And then basically any conflict... You're now banned from ever going to Eritrea. I probably already was, but weird. (laughs) Um, Yeah, pretty much every conflict in Africa during the Cold War through till pretty much the present, I think has seen T-55s in use to some, by some army or some force. Um, like the Libyans used them extensively during the Toyota Wars against Chad, uh, where they were quite spectacularly defeated. But I think, again, that has more to do with doctrine, strategy, and Definitely. training rather than like the quality of the tank. Um, Muammar Gaddafi was really only ever good at killing unarmed people. Yeah, they didn't have a whole particularly good record in like anything else. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, they've also been used, of course, extensively in the Iraqi Civil War, the Gulf War. I guess we should talk about the Gulf War because um, that's kind of the main, the main instance where modern American tanks fought uh, Soviet tanks. I won't say modern Soviet tanks because that's not true. They were mostly obsolete Soviet tanks by that point, but Soviet tanks or Soviet-designed tanks. Um, the Iraq- and the, and the, the, the Iraqi Republican Guard Armor Force is definitely blowing up and like championed before that is like, you know, they're like the third or fourth land army, the largest land army and considered the strongest in the Middle East. So they, they weren't modern, but they were, they were thought of as modern at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say though, that the people doing that were mostly um, practicing yellow journalism and sensationalism because if they had actually objectively look at, looked at Iraqi performance during the Iran Iraq war, and Iraqi capabilities, they would have known that uh, you put like not you, great. Yeah, you spend, not great you spend, stuff. Yeah, you spend three months bombing them, and then invade with Abrams and like much more modernized M sixty A threes and whatever the British were using, Challengers probably, um, Leopards and so on. Like the T, the vast majority of the Iraqi armored force was T fifty fives and T sixty twos with a handful of T seventy twos, and even those T seventy twos which were, you know, the T-72, the late model T-72 is a very formidable tank. But what the Iraqis had was not the late model T-72. It was the already downgraded export version, often with many low-quality Iraqi-made parts, such as the ammunition. Um, And then, of course, the T-55 by 1991 was a 40, well, in many ways, 50-year-old design, um, off probably a tank that was 30 or 40 years old, being driven by conscripts who had no particular desire to be there against American M1A1 Abrams <laughs> with a full range of fancy night vision and so on equipment. And also the Iraqis had just been bombed for like two months by fucking everything in the American Air Force. 
Um, so I don't think it's like a fair comparison to say that just because the Iraqis lost in 1991 that they that their equipment was like and that or that Soviet or Russian designed equipment is inherently inferior to American design equipment. There, it's it'd be it's kind of apples and oranges because the Iraqi stuff was not what the Soviets would have fielded if the Americans had been invading the Soviet Union at the same time, nor would it be up against soldiers who are as poorly trained and poorly motivated, and poorly supplied and poorly led as the Iraqis were in 1991. I, I think we've touched upon this a little bit uh, way back far time ago when we talked about the Iran-Iraq wars, like regionally, these were, these were decent vehicles yeah. um, for, you know, what the Iraqis could produce, you know, before the utter devastation of the Iran-Iraq war and mm. most of their manufacturing capabilities kind of went to shit and then, you know, sanctions and then everything else. But, you know, uh, they're not exactly, if you gave them an, an equal amount of M1A1 or Merkavas or Leopards or mm-hmm. whatever, like they're not going to be able to run them. Yeah, like, they, exactly. just, they just don't have the logistics. So yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's I like think, the, the U.S. still barely has the fucking logistics to run the Abrams. So like we can't expect the... Uh, the Iraqis in 91 to be able to field an equivalent uh, tank. And I think a lot of people uh, specifically in the U S are um, running into the same kind of idea of their own tank. Now, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the Abrams and it's various forms because, you know, the, now there's soon no end to uh, footage of it being like ripped apart by <laughs> uh, rockets and stuff in like yeah. Yemen and Syria mm-hmm. and people are like, Oh wow. The Abrams is a bad tank. It's not, I, I can tell you firsthand. It's not a yeah. bad tank, but w- much like the Soviets, we export shittier versions of our <laughs> yeah. tank to people. Yeah. Like it doesn't have Chabam armor. Most of the time uh, yeah. it's like shitty steel armor, yeah. uh, which is what the, uh, I believe the Saudis get and, yeah. uh, uh, and the Iraqis got as well, which then means ISIS has them or had <laughs> them. But yeah, uh, well, like ISIS knew that they couldn't run them, so they just torched all the Abrams that they captured. Like, meanwhile, yeah. they're running their T-55s right through the fucking Battle of Mosul. <laughs> yeah, they they did some burnouts in their Abrams for the propaganda, because yeah. like, honestly, who wouldn't? Yeah. Uh, you know, like, credit where you do not, in fact, have to hand it to ISIS, but like, <laughs> you do a sick burnout and you capture your American tank before you torch it. But yeah, yeah I, I think that really leads me to like a question of, do people use the T-55? Um, because it's just incredibly reliable, like an AK-47, or simply because, like, oh, T-55 blew up, we got 16 more. Like, I there's mean, there's got to be some kind of balance <laughs> in the middle, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, the answer is both in some ways, because, like, for one, it was designed at a time when military vehicles across the board were just a little, were just simpler. Um, they didn't have fancy electronics, they didn't have a fucking jet engine or whatever the fuck the Abrams has, like, um... Yeah. They were just like really like high quality, well designed, um, like <laughs> analogs, like analog vehicles. They weren't digitalized. None, nothing was fancy. Everything was just basic, well designed mechanics. Um, and so they then also produced 50 fucking thousand of them and disseminated them across the entire world. Um, so. Yeah, sure. Like it might break down easily, but you have the spare parts most likely. Um, and even even if you don't, you can probably just like hit it with a wrench enough times, and it'll start up again. 
um, because it's so like so the Abrams and the T fifty five do have that in common. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a trick. In a, at least in the old version, I've been out of the army almost ten years. But mm-hmm. if your starter was breaking down, you could pull off the back plate of the tank, which is commonly <laughs> known as the bitch plate, because it was incredibly heavy and a bitch to put back in place. Uh-huh. And if you hit it with a hammer. Uh, while you're trying to start it, it would turn over. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I know I'm sure the T55 is the same way, but you'd also don't have to fuel a fucking jet turbine engine or whatever, and you don't have yeah. to. You don't have to make sure like your fancy like thermal optics work or anything like that. It's just like there's a piece of glass and you look through it, and it's got a piece of like black like etched in it as the optic. Like, like it even seems like they can put nearly anything in it to fuel it. Right, like yeah, these places basically. that are are fielding them don't exactly have stable supplies of what I'm assuming is diesel. Yeah. Um. So, like, is it like one of those vegetable cars you can just pour whatever <laughs> into it as long as it combusts? And it'll, like, I've heard people pouring things that are definitely not gasoline into Soviet era tanks and them still yeah. running. No, I'm I'm sure it's something like that. And um, and also I think like just the the basic design is good enough that even like state. Um, state actors who have resources, like particularly a lot of Eastern European countries that have since joined NATO, they continue to actually operate T-55s. They've just massively upgraded them with, you know, way better armor, better engines, better guns, better optics, better fire control stuff. Like everything is different, but it's just all stuck onto a T-55 base and um, it works fine. T-55 base gentrification. I won't stand for it. (laughs) I mean, I think they look pretty ugly. Um, the best they, 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 they do look pretty hideous. I think yeah. North Korea has a model that they continue to uh, revamp as well. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think the ones who currently use it, like, like Romania, Slovakia, maybe Poland still has um, Czechoslovakia or something, um, has a couple knocking around. And, like, yeah, they, they look completely different. Like, they're really bastardized. The best T-55s were built in, like... The 1960s by Poland or Russia or something, and they didn't ha- didn't have all this extra shit stuck to them. They they're pure, you know. If it's not from that region, it's just sparkling armored warfare. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I got it in there. Uh, yeah. You know, it's 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 interesting because it seems like there's you know they're simple machines because you know for my experience uh, researching the Soviet Afghan war is the Mm -hmm. Soviets thought very, very little of their own soldiers and what they could operate. Yeah. So like they tried purposely and I'm not saying this is a wrong thing to do. I believe the U S military should try to do it more. Uh Um, even in 2020 is make things dumber. Yeah. (laughs) Because like, well, I mean, obviously the Soviets had conscription, which we did at the time as well. So you are purposefully sitting out like we are scraping the bottom of the barrel. They need to be able to operate this. And historically, tank, uh, what the Soviets called tankists, weren't the brightest people. Um, yeah. norm- normally, they just kind of knew how to work on tractors and stuff. Uh, <laughs> but like you know, that you had to be able to figure it out. And the M- the M1 Abrams kind of does that, mm-hmm. but it also has a ton of computers in it now, which my first version did not. Yeah. Uh, when I when I was originally, I was I was in an M1A1 that was you know one you know the one that we use in the Gulf War is the M1 with the 105 main gun on it mm-hmm. um, and a few other changes. But then I was an M1A1, which has 120 and has a few other computerized changes. And they came out with the SEP, which has like R2D2 on top of it. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can beat the shit out of the tank and force it to work. 
and like tape fuel lines together and you know it's still big dumb stupid tank work but you know it has a ton of computers on it that are mm-hmm. finicky as shit um and the the T55 seems to be like even cuz even if it, the most complex version of it breaks or the most complex part of it breaks which is probably I don't know maybe the optics yeah you could still kind of use it yeah just like point <laughs> blank or like as indirect fire support or something like that um, which I think a lot and of the, the militias are doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, Northern Alliance did that, um, when John Walker Lind, whatever prison he was, uh, being held in, in Northern Afghanistan rioted. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I believe that's how they, fi- they finished the riot was by, uh, <laughs> pouring gasoline into the basement, lighting it on fire and then pumping T-55 rounds in at like point blank range. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. But it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I saw a video, um, I think in Libya, of one of the militias. They had, they had a T-55 there, um, and they were, I, who knows whether or not the optics were working, but they were just, like, slowly churning out high-explosive ammo into a town at, like, you know, maybe three or 400 meters. And it's like, at that range, you don't really need much more than, uh, you know, a basic guesstimation of, like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, like, about half a click out. All right, whatever. <laughs> The old Kentucky windage of war crimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you're not doing, like, highly mobile tank warfare at three kilometers. That's not what you're trying to do with it anymore. You use it the way you can use it. And, um, I don't know, like, I think I have a lot of... I don't know, I just think it's really cool that, like, something like that can continue to find... I mean, unfortunately, it's a weapon of war. And it's bad. War is bad. But, I mean, but it's still fucking cool that it's still yeah it would be better if our favorite <laughs> yeah. hobby did not exist um, yeah <laughs> but i mean think of it in a reverse way what are we still using or what were they still using vehicle wise or or really even weaponized mm-hmm. weapon wise in you know the when the t55 came out that was 50 years before that yeah you know i'm sure um, a lot the, of things uh, it, it's incredibly rare like nobody's yeah. rolling around a fucking mark 5 tank in 1950 <laughs> it's not yeah. happening uh, yeah, and that's I mean, a, a much and a much newer invest uh, yeah. invention in, yeah. in comparison. But um, you know, the the closest thing that can even exist, or the, I, I believe the closest thing that exists in America to that's the the M two fifty caliber machine gun, which yeah. re- it still exists ve- with very little changes to it. Yeah. Uh, they recently changed. Like the most back assward, like headspace and timing. If you're not familiar yeah, with yeah, that, I know, I know what you mean. They only very recently got rid of that with like a new barrel <laughs> design, um, which blew my mind because it's like, well, next year make me load it from the barrel first. It's <laughs> it, you know it's such an old thing, um, yeah. but yeah. And it was after I got out that they have my friend told me like, yeah, you don't have to do headspace and timing anymore. And it was like he might as well have explained to me that they just uh, re- like refitted it to shoot lasers because it absolutely <laughs> blew my mind. Yeah. Well, that's kind of uh, funny, actually, that you mention it. Uh, I saw a video of Iraqi special forces in Mosul during the Battle of Mosul with like a M2 on a tripod shooting it, and some of the comments were guys like incredible, yeah. And some of the comments were were guys who I, I assume were like U.S. military, being like, "Wow, like you know, they they must have really screwed that gun up. Like they keep having to like yank the charging handle back. Like my M2 never does that." And I'm like, "Hmm, hmm, how new are you?" <laughs> Uh, that's not true. The, <laughs> yeah. for, first of all, second of all, they're incredibly finicky uh, and ha- need to have replacement parts put in all the time. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's also they're fighting in the Battle of Mosul, which <laughs> n- 
I mean, very few uh, American soldiers saw the same amount of combat with their weapons as like yeah. the Golden Division did and, yeah. and, and stuff like that. But um, so, Travis, thanks for joining me. Yeah. Uh, we have a thing on the show, which you've never taken part in before, called no, Questions so. from the Legion. <laughs> uh, if you're listening and you would like to ask us a question from the Legion, you can donate a dollar to the show and ask us on Discord. Uh, this one, I think, is um, pretty on brand for for the well, obviously the show, but also more specifically us is um, best European country based on historical war crime. Sorry, best European country based on historical war crime history. So, <laughs> if I, I I probably should ask for clarification on this, but I'm going to take it my own way, which is what is uh, your favorite country? <laughs> based on their horrific human rights records. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, there's two obvious ones here, um, which is, like, Germany and Belgium, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to pick Belgium simply because everybody knows Hitler's a fucking bastard. Yeah. And not many people know who Leopold II is. Uh, yeah. Though I did see some heartwarming footage uh, this morning of a whole bunch of Belgian kids vandalizing the shit out of a Leopold II statue until the st- city took it down. Yeah, that was tight. Uh, yeah, so shout out to our Belgian comrades. Keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm afraid I don't really... I can't immediately think of a good answer um, because, again, like you said, the obvious choices are going to be Germany, Belgium, and then like England or the British Empire or something. I mean, we're definitely uh, talking podium status here. Yeah. Um, so the I'm UK's gonna, up there. I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with France because on the day that World War II ended in Europe, the French decided to massacre something like 30,000 protesting Algerians um, yes. and then over the course of the next 15 years kill something like 2 to 3 million Algerian people during their war to independence. So, I'm going to go with France because... Uh, France is a good one. Yeah. They kind of suck at that kind of stuff. They, they they did a lot of war crimes. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, my grandpa helped with that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll we'll yeah. edit that. We'll delete that part. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, most people who are recent immigrants uh, or families are recent immigrants from Europe. <sighs> yeah, you know, it, I, you can't judge me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> your parents did some awful shit. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. Um, so, Travis, again, uh, thanks for joining us. What was the book that you used as oh, the yeah. source for this? So, the primary source for this would have been, um, what's the title? It's by Stephen Zaloga. Zaloga, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name, but it's I think it's called T-54 and T-55, Main Battle Tank, like 1953 to 19-something or other. Um, I forgot to copy the title page, so I don't actually have that. Um, but, yeah... Zaloga wrote a bunch of books about pretty much every tank. As far as I can tell, he's the premier tank historian out there right for now. now. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming for you. <laughs> yeah. Not really. Um, but yeah, so I think I pulled a little bit of other stuff from his books on the T-72. Um, and then, yeah. So basically, Zaloga is the main source. So if you just figure, you know, buy all of his books or obtain them through other means on the internet, um, they're fantastic. And they've got great uh, photographs and uh, drawings as well. Yeah, the one thing they need to invent for a tank history book is a scratch and sniff where <laughs> you can truly experience what the inside of a tank turret's like after like a week of use. Mm. Um, 
Oh, God. It's like the worst <laughs> Yankee candle ever. Uh, Travis, again, it's always a joy to have you on. Um, thanks for uh, finally expanding upon our glorious Armored Mother T-55's lore. Praise be. Uh, uh, and until next time, um, I don't know. Uh, uh, normally, I have an exit here where it's like, until next time, don't do this from the episode. But this time, it's like, I don't know, buy a T-55. Yeah, they're on sale, Buy guys. a T-55. And buy me a T-55.